Welcome to Lawyer by Day, a podcast about lawyers' hidden stories. My guest today grew up in Gippsland and went to school in Sale, like me. And following her law degree, she went back to Sale to work there as a lawyer. This interview was a great opportunity for me. Some of the things we talked about are things that I've wondered about for quite a long time. Things like what it's like to be a lawyer in the town you grew up in, or maybe just what it's like being a lawyer in a smaller community. And since studying law, I've wondered if I could ever go back to Sale or somewhere similar to apply my trade. I spent years on and around the water of the Sale Canal and the Thompson River when I lived in Sale. Now, I can get pretty sentimental sometimes, and I thought a while ago that maybe even a visit to Sale and the port just out the back of the old ESO building might help me think of something interesting to say at the top of this episode about Sale or what it was like to grow up there. But when I had the opportunity to pass by the port of sale recently, I really didn't hang around very long. It wasn't yet spring, it was freezing, and I needed to get back home, which of course is now in Melbourne. I'm not sure how much I feel a connection to sale anymore, but I'm definitely keen to know about why Belinda Wilson does. Well, I was ready. Hi, I'm Belinda Wilson. I'm the President of the Law Institute of Victoria and I'm also a Director of the Peak Body for Seafood Industry Australia. The first time I saw Belinda in person was in the forecourt area of the County Court building on Lonsdale Street. It was the middle of May, it was 7.40 in the morning and when I checked my phone the temperature had just reached 6 degrees so again, not yet spring. She was addressing the crowd at Walk for Justice. It's an event organised by the Law Institute and Justice Connect. It promotes the profession's pro bono work and the discussion of access to justice more generally. Belinda addressed the slightly bleary-eyed but pretty upbeat crowd along with the Attorney-General. Apart from getting us all to think about access to justice and the role of the profession in providing pro bono assistance... I wondered just how often the job of president required these kinds of early starts. I don't do early mornings. Um, (laughs) I've never done early mornings. My sister is the queen of early mornings and I've always admired her for that. But I've had to adjust and I have to do early mornings. I, I do love the fact that I am able to contribute my voice to the profession. I am lucky enough, for some reason, people will listen and we've got some really important matters that not only cover our profession but cover consumers as well so it's great to be able to have that that voice and it's also brilliant to see that the LIV has that traction with government and opposition and to be able to speak alongside the Attorney General is is an honour. Do you get along well with the Attorney General? Uh, I do. Martin Martin's lovely. He he, he very much I mean, he's, he's a great supporter of the profession. He, he listens, he's very measured, he understands. But obviously, you know, there, there are constraints, uh, there are government constraints. And we also have open discussions with the Shadow Attorney General, John Pasuto, who is himself a lawyer and I think he's also got a Gippsland connection. <laughs> the last few weeks I've been down in Gippsland and it's just been amazing because that's where I, I grew up and I understand we've got something in common there. 
and I spent three days travelling around various parts of Gippsland, uh, checking in with all the practitioners down in that area and just finding out what common issues are impacting on Gippsland solicitors and Gippsland clients. And it was an incredible sort of watch, listen and, and learn experience. What types of stories did they tell you? Like, What are they telling you as president of the LIV? It's not unsurprising, unfortunately. The The major story coming out of Gippsland is the prevalence of family violence and drugs and how that's impacting on practitioners. We've got so many practitioners that are doing an incredible amount of work. They're doing a lot of pro bono work as well, but there's just not the, the resources. There's not the legal aid funding resources that are coming through and there's not the support services as well. So... I wish it was fantastic stories that I could sort of come back and say, you know, everything's fine and, and rosy, but, but there's some serious concerns down there. What did you do day to day on that trip? Did you just drive between cities and towns? Did you go to Taralgon and Sail? And, you know, were you in meetings with lawyers or, or were these people you know? Or how, how did you kind of run your travel? Yeah, part of it was organised and the, the rest was unplanned, which is always fun. Um, I started in... Morwell and checked in with a few local solicitors had oh, it was fantastic I'd uh, arrived in in Morwell a two-hour car trip and walked into this firm and they had the coffee the cake they had everything ready to greet me and that is just cu- country warmth that that speaks volumes of country practitioners so after that, went and popped my head into the local magistrate's court just to see who was about and uh, have some one-on-one chats there. Often it was also then just popping, as I was walking to and, and from court, it was popping into local solicitors' offices just to see if they had a free five minutes to have a bit of a chat. And then I continued that with a fantastic dinner in Tarragon with about 50 practitioners the, the Monday night. And the next few days, it was making sure that I saw as much of Gippsland as possible. So it was coffee with some solicitors in Mafra, then on to Bensdale for a lunch. And then the following day was sale. So it was a a combination of one-on-one meetings, small intimate setting meetings, and quite a bit of media interest as well. How do you feel when you're driving around Gippsland, the place where you grew up and lived for a long time and worked for a long time, coming back in a very different capacity? How does that feel? Gippsland's always very close to my heart. I've got family still there and I've got one particular most favourite place in the world that is in Gippsland, which I'll come back to in a in a second. I mean, I often get back to Gippsland. Um, if my mum is listening to this, she'll probably saying in the background, I don't get back as often as I should. But coming back as president, I mean, it was a huge honour. I remember oh, when I started practice many, many years ago in Gippsland, there were very few females, there were very few younger lawyers, and it was quite hard and a tough environment. I was always very supported by all the other practitioners, but at the same time you had to make your your way through that environment. So coming back now in a totally different capacity, it's it's lovely, it's refreshing. I know that Gippsland practitioners have got my back. They're proud of what is being done, not only by myself, but as the Law Institute for the profession as a whole. And that's just so heartening. What's challenging about being a young and particularly female lawyer in Gippsland, the experience that you had? 
I think it's because Gippsland itself is so large. It's geographically isolating at times. I mean, I was when I started out, I was practicing in sale, and there were only a handful of solicitors. the The nearest female solicitor, I think, at that time was probably in Tarragon, which is about depending on traffic, about 45 minutes away. So you don't get that daily contact with with others that are in a similar position to you. And that's actually how I got started with the Law Institute. I um, the, the Law Institute has this program where they support young lawyers and I put my hand up to be the Gippsland representative for young lawyers. For me, that was about, right, where are these young lawyers within Gippsland? How do I find them? And how do I connect them? And that was just an incredible experience to be part of that and find some amazing young lawyers that were experiencing very similar things to me. You grew up in Gippsland, I think, as we've talked about. You've mentioned that your mum lives in Koongala. Did you actually grow up in Koongala? I did. I did. So Koongala, for those of you who are listening, is a very, very small town. It is on Lake Glen Maggie, which is the main irrigation district for for Gippsland. And Koongala, you'd be lucky with a headcount of maybe about 200. Over the summer months, because we're on the lake, that swells. And we've got Glen Maggie on the other side too, which is a, a very popular holiday destination for, for those that love camping. So I was lucky enough to grow up in Koongala. It was a tough ride to school every morning. It was about an hour on the bus, which was an experience in itself. But it meant that I could grow up in an environment that was a very relaxed environment, it was a very safe environment. Often we'd, we'd get up in the morning, grab the BMX or um, you know, the, saddle up the horse and we'd disappear for the entire day. This is pre-mobile phones, pre-internet, and we'd just go and have incredible fun. Lake Glen Maggie itself is, um, because it's an irrigation dam, over certain months, the level of the the lake actually gets quite low. So as kids, we'd be running around in the mud flats. We'd come back absolutely covered in mud, much to mum's dismay. But for me, they're really fond memories growing up as a kid. What's it like living in Melbourne now, coming from that place? Is it enough to just visit Coongala? Yeah, I, I love Melbourne. I didn't think I'd love Melbourne. I had a, um, when I was still at high school, I got a scholarship to go to Japan. And that was just after year 10 for an entire year. And I left Kungala, population of 200 if you're lucky, and landed in Tokyo, population at that stage of about 20 million. So that was a huge experience and eye-opener for me. Melbourne, obviously just that bit more controlled, and, and I have to say, when I came down to Melbourne for the first time to study law, I found it quite quite hard moving out of a, a small, tight-knit community into Melbourne at that stage where I, w- I wasn't comfortable, perhaps wasn't comfortable also who I was, was as a, a person. But 20 years later, moving back to Melbourne, it's an entirely different experience. I think it also feeds into my new career that I've had over the last few years, which has involved being involved in um, restaurant scene. And Melbourne's just got everything. Melbourne's got the best 
best restaurants, the best coffee. I love the fact that Melbourne has so many distinct pockets. You know, I've been lucky enough to sort of live in a few different suburbs of Melbourne and they're all unique. They're all incredible. They all have different characteristics. You and I both went to St Anne's and Gippsland Grammar, as it was then called. Do you think about your years at high school and the impact that they had on you? I've just recently had my 20-year reunion, which was a a real big experience. Uh, One, I didn't realise that I'd been out of school or I'm not old enough to have, you know, had 20 years of not being at school. I was a square at school. I loved study. I, um, I had a small group of friends and I was by no means in the popular group at all. And I think being involved in study at that stage, being called a square, did have a bit of an impact. But 20 years later, it was fantastic walking into that room. And I haven't, I, I'm a, a rare breed, I'm not on Facebook. So I had, went in cold, I didn't know what anyone was doing, who was married to who, how many kids, etc., etc. Walked into that room and it was brilliant to to actually see how much I had grown. The the confidence that I didn't have at high school, I now had more than most of those people in the room, including the popular people. So I, I think it's it's great sometimes to check check in at times and, and think, well, at different stages of your life, they can be tough, but they are going to be what really shapes you. And there's always opportunity to grow. And I think the, the other thing about that 20-year gap from being away from school is it's made me realise that there's, there's certain things in my life that were so prevalent when I was at high school that unfortunately dropped out of my life. So for me, high school was all about, or even from the you know prep, uh, it was all about singing. It was about playing the violin, the piano, acting, the arts as well. And I think for me, coming down to Melbourne that first time, you're studying, you're working around the clock, you're finding out how to cook your own meal because you're no longer living at home. So all those things, all those passionate things that used to drive you at high school dropped off. And that's certainly something the second time around coming back to Melbourne is something that I've been getting involved in again and making sure that I'm reconnecting, finding those passions that I had all those years ago including how to find out again how to ride a bike. (laughs) Esther Krivy's drama classes didn't inspire you to take up theatre and drama at uni? No, Miss Krivy's a a fantastic woman that she was uh, at times probably scared me. I think she probably scared all of us a a bit and I was lucky she taught me uh, English as well. So I hope I'm doing her proud today, trying to get a command on the English language. (laughs) I also had another teacher, when I got back from Japan, I finished up my schooling my last year at Mafra High School, and Trish Newgreen was my drama and singing teacher at that stage, and she had a massive impact on my my life, and it was lovely, I actually caught up with her a few weeks ago when I was in in Gippsland, and she said, geez, Belinda, I always knew you had, had all of this in you, this is no surprise to me. What did she mean when she said all of this in you? All of this, I at times I feel quite, I don't know if guilty is the, the right word, but I, I feel quite sad that I have had to leave Gippsland to experience what I'm currently experiencing. And, and Trish said, well, no, that's, that is who you were 
always going to be, Gippsland has made you that person. And sometimes you do have to to get out of that smaller fish pond into the the larger um, aquarium. And um, and I think Trish always saw the writing on the wall that that I was you know, going to to be able to expand, but always have my my roots in Gippsland. But why feel guilty? Like, what to who is it? Family? Like, you feel like you owe something to family to be around, or is it um, is it the community more generally? Or oh, look, I I think um, I mean I I wish I could be in Gippsland more especially for family I've got my my mum and stepdad are there my my grandfather and my grandma just recently passed away this year so so Gippsland is that that very special place and as I said before I'd come back to my all-time favorite place in the world which is my my grandparents home they they live on the the shore of Lake Glen Maggie there's this amazing outlook that they have which is just this rocky crop that comes to this point, and we call it North Point. So for me, I always come back to that place as a, a point of grounding. So feeling guilty, also the community. I've always been an advocate for just because you practice law in Gippsland, you're not a second-class citizen. So me now not being in Gippsland, I, I feel as though I'm a, you know, not true to to my word. But you know, I, I think Gippsland will always be there for me. After high school, what what happened after high school? I got my results and I had to listen. And this is, once again, going back pre-internet days. And at that stage, you had you could dial in on the morning to hear your result over the telephone. I listened to the, the clunky computer voice and I had to call back about three times because I didn't think it was right. And so when I got that result, I went, wow, I'm... I've got to quickly change my preferences. Um, I um, I experienced a different, a really pretty difficult year twelve. I didn't think I was going to do as well as I did. My parents divorced in the middle of exams. I'd come back from Japan, and it's just that resettling process you've got to go through. So I was originally looking at um, doing psychology. When I got my results, I went, "No, nah, I've always wanted to do law. I now have those marks that I can actually do do law." lucky enough to get into Melbourne Uni and move down to Melbourne at the same time. So if uni, moving to Melbourne and studying law at university wasn't enough, I also decided to work full time. I was lucky enough through Family Connections to get a job as a paralegal at Mallison's, where I had an incredible six years doing, you know, it was a, a real introduction into to what the law is and what the law can be. And it was a lot of hard work at the same time. <laughs> what were you doing at Mallison's? Everything. Everything from doing you know, higher end stuff like legal research, right down to picking the staples out of paper so that you could then scan those documents or, um, or photocopy those documents. So it was just a broad range of skills. And I met some, some really great people during that process. And friends that I, I still hold dear 20 years later now. Do you remember the types of matters that you worked on and, and with, with the, the matters themselves, things that had an impact on you? Yeah, I actually took a year off uni so that I could work as a paralegal full time throughout that entire year on the Longford Royal Commission case. I was leading the, 
the discovery on, on that. So as a paralegal, there were about 20 of us. And we spent months at BHP just going through all potential documents that were going to be needed in that Royal Commission. And that was quite big, um, especially for me, knowing what what impact that had on, on sale in Longford. After that, I then moved into the, um, the media team, mergers and acquisitions and, and defamation and media. And that really shaped who I was. I um, f- Funny fact, I was the person that registered the business name Nova, uh, so Nova FM. And that was um, an exciting time to be part of that profession because it was the first time in so many years that new broadcasting licenses were on issue. So I got to be part of that process, even if, you know, from registering a business name to um, working on contracts for, for new talent, new up-and-coming radio stars, um, through to all the um, working on all the competition work as well. So it was it was quite a good time. When you were working on the Longford Discovery, was your mind kind of in Gippsland again in that way? Like where you think, like it, it was a massive event for the community and it affected a lot of people in very serious and dramatic ways. Did, did that have an impact on you, even if it was working through the documents in, in the war room? Oh, look, at, at times your your mind would be brought back to that. I think, too, it was something that affected most Victorians because it was, for most Victorians, it was an inconvenience because they didn't have gas, they didn't have hot water, they didn't have heating for those that relied on, on gas. And for me, I would think, wow, it's these these are lives lost. It's not just an inconvenience. Think about the impact that that's actually had beyond your inconvenience because you just haven't been able to have a hot shower for a few weeks or a few I can't remember how, how long that went for but and I think it was a time that made us all realize how important our infrastructure is and the people that work within that infrastructure do you think your paralegal team and <clears throat> lawyers generally who work on matters of that type of significance do they need to kind of let go of that feeling a little bit though to make sure that they're doing their discovery properly and that they're representing their client appropriately? Yeah, look, I I think you all, I mean, as lawyers, you're trained to, to leave your emotions to some degree at the door and you've got to come in with the, the right mindset. But occasionally there are going to be cases that do stir that emotion. Um, what I'm more concerned about now is young lawyers are not getting the experience that I had those 20 years ago um, because of technology. I mean, technology is a fantastic thing and it's a great driver of innovation. But how do young lawyers now get that experience that they need to make them great lawyers? And I I don't know the, the answer to that. What was your experience like at, at law school while trying to yeah. fit in that work at Mallison's? Hectic. I, I, I look to be honest. I I didn't particularly enjoy studying law. I don't know if anyone really does, <laughs> um, and I don't know your experience, Mark. But and you may you may want to um, stay silent on that. But <laughs> for me, it was seeing the law in action that was just so much more important, and and going beyond the textbooks, be going beyond the cases. I was a horrid student. I, I would. I'm telling all the secrets now. I would um, 
two criteria for choosing my electives. One, was I interested in it? Yeah, okay. But more importantly was, what's the assessment criteria? I always looked for something that was a 100% exam because it meant you could go in there, do a two, three hour exam and get out as opposed to doing the research and, you know, labouring over this piece of work for you know months and then wondering whether you've got the right words or case citations in there. They've probably changed the rules now just because of me. <laughs> um, but I remember, I mean, I'd be running between work, I'd be running between uni and, you know, trying to get back to Gippsland as often as I, as I could as well. And my marks weren't particularly great, but I was having a, a ball. I was actually really understanding the the legal practice because I was working at Mallison's. And flowing on from, from that, because my marks weren't absolutely brilliant, they weren't horrid either, Mallison's, um, I got so close to that securing an article clerk position and I was probably one position away. And they said, look, thanks, but unfortunately, we've got some some other people with other qualities. They've had other work experience uh, opportunities and better marks. And for me, that was a bit of a, a kick in the guts because I was very loyal just to the one firm. But from that came incredible opportunity because I secured articles at Sullivan Braham in sale. And for me, I, I would never go back and change any of that. What was it like moving back? It was great. It was it was the for me it was the 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 right time. It was exactly what I I needed. And it was just being thrown in the deep end rather than having all the resources at your fingertips like Mallison's. You're in a smaller firm and you have to be you're working, you have to see clients, you have to have that mutual understanding of your clients and respect and you can't say, oh, look, sorry, I'm I'm relatively new. You've got to run with it pretty quickly. What law, what was the focus of your practice? As a country practitioner, you've got to be very broad. And for me, it was pretty much everything apart from crime. So the, the main things would be um, property law, it would be wills and estates, it would be business law and, um, and family law, and then everything in between. How do you practice particularly family law in a relatively small community when you're likely to know a lot of your clients before they walk in the door? For me, I made a very difficult choice that after a few years I would no longer do family law and that was as a result of a a suicide and it was a, a, a client that I didn't particularly know too well but I knew within the community and I knew you know his family and and friends so that really hit me hard and for me that was the the straw that broke the camel's back I think family law is hard irrespective of, of where you practice and it does take a lot of determination but it's an integral part of our legal system and and we we need those brilliant solicitors that can can do that and there's just that extra added difficulty of being in a a small community knowing everyone knowing family histories often you've gone to school with with them or their parents so it it does make it quite difficult but as solicitors 
we we are those trusted advisors within the community. So whatever said to us, our clients have that knowledge that it does not go beyond the four walls of that office. And um, that is a massive no-no to you know, in any area of law, particularly in country areas, you do not you do not pass on any information at at all under any circumstance. Did you do much work in court while you were in sale? Did you get around the the sale magistrates court and and do any appearances I, or instruct? Oh look, on I ladies? I tried to avoid it to be honest. I was so shy when I started my career. I I did a, a bit of appearance work. But it terrified me. And um, and looking back now, I think that's just so silly. I mean, this year as president, I have appeared pre- pretty much in every jurisdiction, including the High Court of Australia this year. Um, and they're, that, they're all, all those appearances are for ceremonial purposes, but sometimes the pressure's really on for, for those types as opposed to your, your day-to-day work. Um, so looking back now... If I had my time over again for court appearances, I don't think it would faze me as much. But that's that is a benefit of being a country practitioner because you're you're based right. You know, your firm is usually within throwing a stones uh, throwing distance from the court. If you don't have a matter on in court, you still might be called because um, you might be needed at late notice. You've just got to run with it, um, and it's a great great uh, ground for 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 learning. And I mean, a lot of lot of city practitioners say, "I love being a solicitor, but I'm going to think about going to the bar to be a barrister." Well, if you're in Gippsland, you've got the best of both worlds because you've got your your, your desk work, client contact, but then you're also in court a fair amount of time. So, yeah, best of both worlds. What work did you enjoy most when you're working at Sullivan and Brown? I I really loved working with the older generation. And and this sounds strange, but the estate work particularly, it's it's a very difficult time of, of someone's life when they've lost someone. And for me it was about making that job or that um that process so much easier. And and it is confusing, it is um very technical and seeing my clients sort of walk in and you'd say, look, just, just leave it with me. It's fine. It's all okay. I've got it. And explaining, being able to explain it in a way that my clients understood, I suppose that's where I got my, you know, my most joy out of. And especially for me, being a country practitioner, it was when, not only when your client came back that you go, yes, I must have done something right, but it was when the the next generation came in and then the generation after that came in and it was wow i am the family solicitor that is a mark of honor there was your experience that people in gippsland particularly with their assets like in farming and in, in agriculture did they do enough planning about what would happen after they die like all of us some are better than others and I have to say, I haven't updated my will. <laughs> um, look, fa- family farms are really difficult. The, I suppose the, the, the issue with the family farm is sometimes it can't be divided up amongst the four kids. Sometimes you've got the situation where one of those children 
re- remains on the farm as the the next generation and the other three head off to Melbourne or worldwide. And some instances, there were no children that wanted to be part of that family farm business when their parents moved on. So it was about having the conversations with the clients when they were doing their estate work, oh, sorry, their, their will rather, um, about, okay, well, what what is it that you want to achieve? How are we going to create equality amongst all your kids? And how do we preserve this this asset for the next generation? Or how do we maximise the value if you did want to, to sell it? And estate work, so the, the flip side, when the, the farmer has passed away, some some of those uh, litigated matters are the most difficult to to deal with because it breaks families apart. You can't split a farm down the middle. You've talked a few times about young people moving to Melbourne. Why aren't people staying in sale? I think a lot of people are starting to to realise that the the country does have opportunities. So I went through a whole phase, and especially working with the young lawyers, I was involved in increasing the reputation of Gippsland lawyers, and I later became the Gippsland president of the Gippsland Law Association. And it's about, so it was that, first of all, it was difficult to attract professionals down to to Gippsland, and probably any region for that matter, because you're seen as, oh, um, Oh, it reminds me of um, the ABC drama Rose Haven. Uh, you know, couldn't cut it on the mainland, um, and and that's essentially what you know. If you were practicing in Gippsland, people would say, "Oh, couldn't couldn't uh, hack it in the in the city," and that's not the case. You're not a second class lawyer um, or citizen because you're in the country. You've actually made that lifestyle choice, that professional choice, and I think I'm probably a better practitioner for for doing what I've done. So I think we're. That, that tide has started to turn. I think people realise that there are real benefits of practising outside of Melbourne. I think Melbourne is getting a bit closer to Gippsland. We've got some fantastic roads. If the state and federal government continue their promise to upgrade V-Line, we're gonna, it's going to be brilliant because it's going to be that bit closer and um, more accessible. We all know so, what some of those V-Line trips are like, back to sale. <laughs> and there's a whole podcast on, on just that. So I think we're starting to, to, to get people to appreciate that you, you can make a, a life outside of um, the, the city. And this is where technology is brilliant because technology breaks down barriers. Once upon a time, or you know, I think with law firms, it was your status about, well, what number Collins Street are you? Um, how big's the firm? How many partners? And we're now seeing even those large law firms are, are going to different models of practicing law. They're using technology and physically you could be anywhere in the world. And that just means Gippsland is one of those places in the world that you can be running a small, medium, large you know, empire and you can be a legal practitioner wherever. This might sound like a really cynical question, but... If a lawyer here in Melbourne is committed to moving to regional or rural Victoria to be a lawyer, can they get a job and can they make any money? I'd say yes and yes. Having just come back from from Gippsland on that regional tour, there are a lot of vacancies and there's a it was refreshing to see some new faces and some new firms 
But it's also disappointing at the same time to see that there's some vacancies that haven't been able to be filled, especially throughout Gippsland. They're looking for more senior, so sort of five years experienced lawyers that do want to go down and do criminal work, um, family law, commercial work. There's a position that has not been filled for a matter of months in relation to Aboriginal legal services. And there's also an in-house position that I'm aware of, Department of Human Services, that they just can't fill that legal role. So it's it's disappointing, and especially when I hear young lawyers say, oh, I'm just not going to get a job, there's too many out there. Well, that might be the case. You may not get a traditional job, you may not get a job in the city, but don't tell me there's no jobs because there's plenty of jobs out there. You just need to look. You've got to expand your horizons. Getting back to the money side of things, I look... I, oh, I'd be so rich if, you know, I got a dollar for every time people said, ah, oh, you lawyers are just loaded. I I should have become a blue collar worker if I wanted to be rich. Um, I mean, I, especially in the La Trobe Valley, I'd, um, I'd be talking to my clients, I'd be looking at their, their income as part of the transaction that we were doing. And you go, wow, you guys are getting paid, you know, often three, four times what a lawyer is getting paid so there's a misconception about what you know how much lawyers do do make but I think like if you're a savvy business person no matter where you are you can you can carve out a um, a profession for you and it's up to you and your communication style as to whether you're going to be successful and profitable. How long were you at Sullivan and Brame and where did you go after that? Uh, Sullivan Brain would have been about seven and a half, eight years. And for me, I'd I'd reached that point in my career that I I loved the firm that I worked with, but I felt that I needed to spread my wings. I needed to get a bit more experience elsewhere. And I felt that I'd always be the article clerk at, at Sullivan and Brain because it is hard to sort of break out of that mould. I... Then um, went to Tarelgan and headed up the commercial division of Tyler Tippingham Woods. Mark Woods is renowned across uh, Victoria for his fight about access to justice. And it was, um, I worked with, with Mark for about four years and it was a totally different experience. It was a different client base. So, um, Sale, you're mainly dealing with dairy farmers, business owners, as opposed to La Trobe Valley, which is very much blue-collar worker. And the the clients were different, the work was different, the pace, the expectations, what you could could charge your clients because there was more competition and an expectation that things were done cheaper, faster. So that was a, a real eye-opener for me, I suppose. Was moving to, to Terralgan... A case of what you mentioned before, kind of getting yourself into a bigger pond? It was a different pond. I was still living in in Koongala, um, so it was just travelling in the different direction. And I think it was, I think in our careers we all need to sort of challenge ourselves. We need to jump out of that comfort zone into something that's completely different. I was also the, the president of the Gippsland Law Association at that stage and so Mark was, because he'd done all of that, he was also a past president of the Law Institute of Victoria. For me, it was not just about the work. It was learning from Mark about 
the my next career step, which whilst I was working with Mark, I um, I was elected by our members, our profession, to be a director of the Law Institute of Victoria. So yeah, it was just a, a, a bit more than just about, I suppose it was the what's next for me question. It sounds like Mark was a mentor for you in some way. How did he approach that and, and what did he kind of offer you in helping you develop, particularly in that space of getting involved in the LIV? Yeah, Mark is an incredibly busy person and I don't, to this day, still don't know how he does everything that he does. And I think that just showed that anything is possible. It's not an excuse to say, oh, I'm too busy, I can't. It's just, okay, well, I'll pick and choose what I can do and I'll excel at what I can do. So it was sort of watching him and how he approaches that. It was also watching him, I mean, oh, uh, it was getting the support from Mark because a lot of employers may not have been as supportive of, of, of me and my different aspirations than Mark or even uh, John Sullivan and Viv Braham. I'm very, very lucky that all my bosses have been incredibly supportive. And I think that just shows you that you must be doing something something right. If your boss encourages you to do non-fee-earning work, they realise that it's going to add value to not only their firm in a different way, but it's also going to add value to the profession. And I think that's a, a mark of respect for the profession. They're the types of people that I want to be working for because they understand the bigger picture it's not just about how we can make more money, how we can churn people through the door. It's about how can we make our profession better and serve our communities. When you're driving back to Gippsland or back to Kungala, when you get to Terrelgan, do you do you think about do you think about as you drive through the work that you've done there and the things you're involved in or yeah, I mean, all throughout Gippsland, it's great because you, you drive along the highway and you go, oh, yep, I was involved in the sale of that that motel or that hotel. You know, oh, I, I know why that house burnt down. Or, you know, you've got so many personal stories about so many different locations within Gippsland. And it's, and it's lovely seeing past clients as well when, when you're walking down the street. And, um, yeah, you are part of that, that community, but... But you've got those great, great stories uh, behind everything. How long were you working in Terralgan and what was your next move? Probably about four years, thereabouts. And part of those four years, I came across this quite eccentric client. I did quite a bit of commercial work for him, third generation fisherman. And one day he came to me and he said, oh, I'm going to buy a scallop license. I said, okay, yep, right. He said, do you know what scallops are? And I'd probably eaten one or two. And I'm like, oh, oh yeah, I guess. It's the seafood, right? Not the, uh, if you're in New South Wales, they um, they call the battered um, potato, potato cakes cake. as scallops. I'm like, I just checked, you know, it's it's not potato cakes. It's potato cake see, license. Yeah. <laughs> and, um, and he said, oh, yeah, yeah, no, I'm, I'm, I'm genuine. I, I've been um, advocating with Neil Perry. And I said, oh, yeah, yeah, sure. Because sometimes you get some tall stories, you know, you, you sort of, you know, you trust your clients, you listen to your clients, but you, you do your own research. He actually said, no, I'm serious. I've 
third generation fisherman. I already supply Neil Perry. He thinks this is a great project. And he took me to Neil Perry's website and actually showed me he had his name on the menu. And I think that's the first time Neil's ever put someone's name on the on the menu for his other fish. So I went, yep, this is legit. He said, I've been working behind the scenes. The state government is going to... So I've been lobbying hard to try and get the state government to look at some a license in Port Phillip Bay. Looks like it's going to happen. I need you to do all the due diligence in the lead up to the, the auction by the state government. So I madly researched scallops, um, the history of scallops, and this was a license in Port Phillip Bay. And Port Phillip Bay used to be renowned for, I mean, it, it was, in terms of scalloping, those scallops were the best in the world. The French couldn't get enough of Port Phillip Bay scallops. So I knew that they had a commercial value, they had a history, but that history was also quite a nasty history in the end because it was a dredged fishery and uh, the Kennet government in, I think it was about 97, closed it down and there were rallies um, on the steps of parliament about the, the closure. So it was a quite a volatile industry at times. So I did all that, that research and my, my legal advice to the client, and, and he doesn't mind me disclosing this, was... You're raving mad if you do this. There's so many risks. There's so many unknowns. And from a legal perspective, these are all the things that could happen. So it was one time that my client didn't listen to me, thankfully. <laughs> um, and I think because he's an entrepreneur, he's got a different mindset. He he saw all those risks, but he turned them into opportunities. And he won that license. After that, he turned around and said, I need someone to help me with this. And I thought, well, yeah, look, I'll, you can put me on a retainer or I'd, I'll do a secondment with you or I'll be your in-house lawyer. And he said, no, I need a CEO. It really took me by surprise. I said, well, I've done the other side. I'm a director. I've been involved in committees. I haven't been involved in management side. And he said, look, Belinda, I see potential. I know, I know what I'm saying. I know you're going to be able to do this job and I'm not going to take no for an answer. For me, it was the right time in my career that I went, well, it's an opportunity for me to use my legal skills in an entirely different way. What's the worst thing that could happen if it went wrong? I'll just come back and Gippsland will open up its arms and I'll you know, I'll, I'll be able to, to come back and practice. But this is an opportunity that I, I, I shouldn't say no to. So I said yes. You became the CEO of a scallop farming business. What did that involve everything and this is where Mallison's days really came in handy i when we when he um, purchased the the license it was a 12 ton fishery and these scallops it's a wild fishery in port phillip bay so so close to to home and the government stipulated that they had to be hand-caught. So apart from diving apparatus, there was no other equipment that could be used in the harvesting of these scallops. So when I came on board, it was, are there scallops down there? No one had done any research and there hadn't, apart from uh, recreational divers, no one had had scoped this out pre-auction. So it was that nervous anticipation whilst I engaged a consultant to actually do the, the the survey work to find out, okay, what's down there? Are they, are they still there? Then, thankfully, they were there. 
and they were there in incredible numbers. Numbers that were so big that actually caused us a nightmare and caused Supreme Court litigation. So it was about finding out scallops, finding out, okay, in Um, getting the water quality tested and um, classification of that water to make sure that consumer protection was was paramount. It was then going off and talking to divers, finding out methods of how best to collect this, how to store them, how to keep them alive in holding tanks so that when it's too windy and you can't dive, you've still got a supply to to the, the restaurants. Um, it was about going out and talking to all the chefs, telling the story, educating the chefs, me explaining or showing the chefs how to shuck scallops and everything and anything in between. Did you do your own research as you said you normally do? Did you get in the water yourself to have a look and see what was down there? I didn't. I don't have a diving license, so I didn't get down there, but... I, I'd often be seen with gumboots and I'd be on the factory floor and I'd be inspecting the scallops um, as they came in. The, the factory wor- workers thought I was a bit strange because I'd often go down there and w- when the scallops came in or when you were packing them for a, a, a chef, you actually have to put a rubber band around each individual scallop because it's a live product. So when you're transporting it, you want the scallop to still be alive and if it's open or if it has the capacity to open it's going to to dehydrate it's going to become quite stressed and die so as a result you put a rubber band on it and you box them all up so often i'd i'd be down with the factory workers you know putting uh, rubber bands on scallops and they'd look at me and go wow you know what are you doing i said this is a part of the job that i love What was it like going and talking to those chefs and telling them about a product that you hadn't known much about a few years beforehand? And here you were talking to these chefs, including Neil Perry, about what they were to do with these scallops. Yeah, that was a real pinch the the self moment. As you said, really hands-on. So I'd often be taking scallops home. I'd be practicing on how to shuck them. I'd mangle them. I'd, you know... (laughs) Like I, they. If you don't know how to open them, they can be quite tricky. And you know, I'd have cuts on the fingers, and so I did a lot of practice at home, and that was my homework. But I was quite comfortable then talking to the chefs and showing them from my mistakes. And it was really interesting because people think, oh, well, why you're not a chef? Why have you been having to teach how to shuck scallops? We've got to remember that, particularly over the last you know, 10 years or so, the chefs have gone from where they would get, you know, a whole duck or a whole chicken and have to to do the whole process to a time where they'd buy the chicken breast or it would be partially prepped for them. So bringing the scallops back in to them and scallops that have been available over the last, well, since over the last 20 years since Port Phillip Bay scallop um, industry was closed down, predominantly all the scallops that the chefs have seen have been either just the meat, so they've already been processed, or they're a half shell, so they're already looking nice. They've already been, once again, processed and stuck back on part of that shell. So I came in presenting a whole live shell to the chefs. So, of course, someone has to teach them the best way to, to actually open them, which was good fun. And I think that's where, as a lawyer, my advocacy skills came into being. It's like, um, oh, there was this one 
time, Neil Perry invited me. Every month he has all these top chefs in the one room and they talk about products and do a bit of a briefing and education program. And I turned up, I was running a bit late, walked in the room and I said, oh, hi guys. I I thought I was just a guest, you know, hi guys, thanks so much for having me. Neil turns around and says, Belinda, the floor's yours. And I went, oh, and the lawyer in me kicked in. It's like, look, this is no different from being a duty lawyer. You've just seen the client. You've just got to run with it. And scallops certainly is something that I knew inside, outside, you know, and very passionate about. So combining that with the advocacy skills, you can just talk, talk about it and feel quite comfortable. You mentioned that the business became involved in some litigation. How did that come about? change of government <laughs> so what what happened there was we bought this 12 ton license and it was the capacity uh, because no research had been done about how many scallops are down there the condition of the license was the license holder will do all that due diligence they will spend all the money on any research but the trade-off is they can grow the industry when we completed our research the figures the health of that population in Port Phillip Bay, based on scientific evidence and the documents that were provided by the government, the the Liberal government, as part of this licence, would have allowed us to expand that fishery into a 750-tonne fishery. As this all happened, we also had a change of government. We had Labor come in, a new minister, and the new minister looked at 12 tonne versus 750 tonne and went, holy moly, what has happened here? We have legislation in place that only allows one licence for Port Phillip Bay, and this potentially was an underselling of public resources. Fishing is very much determined on you have to have a licence, but in relation to scallops and other fisheries too, you have to have a quota. And that's always 1st of April it's declared. And usually it's the minister that has to make that declaration and it's gazetted. 1st of April came and the minister had not signed off on a new licence. That came through a few days late. That was okay. So we then had a licence, but we didn't have a quota. Technically, yes, we had a scallop licence, but it meant that we couldn't take our boats out onto the bay because we had no quota that we were able to to catch. Halfway through April, we had no option but to issue proceedings in the Supreme Court against the Minister for Agriculture. So this is where my the, the lawyer in me just was always there. Every meeting that I had gone into, where whether it had was a departmental meeting, a scientific meeting, or a government sort of minister level meeting, I had notes. I had handwritten notes, like I was still that that solicitor uh, running a, a file, copious amounts of notes. I had emails confirming all our discussions. I had documents. I had evidence galore, which then enabled me to issue Supreme Court proceedings that had everything nailed down, including direct quotes from discussions that I'd had. So we filed and served that, oh, I think it was on a Friday? Uh, no, it might have been on a sort of mid midweek, so it might have been Wednesday. Filed and served Wednesday. We were in the Supreme Court in the practice division on the following Monday. 
And then we had written judgment in our favour on a mandamus application by that Friday. We also got costs awarded in our favour, which meant that the department or the minister had to to pay not only their costs, but our legal costs for that case. So it was exciting times and it certainly showed what benefit solicitors can bring in the business world. (laughs) Do you think a different CEO, a non-lawyer CEO, would have tackled that differently? Potentially, especially in the fishing industry, a lot of it's done on handshakes. Um, there's, it, it's still quite an you know honest based and and I, I I used my my legal training in that that field. Port Phillip Bay Scallops now does have a another CEO operating um, manager and he doesn't have a legal background and he had to issue legal proceedings again on a similar case I think it was earlier this year and he was lucky enough all he had to do was pretty much file exactly the same material in court and said you know what she said (laughs) Um, so I, I think it may have been a totally different outcome if it had have been a a different person as CEO from day one of that company. Are you still involved in the company now? No, I'm not. I'm full-time now at the Law Institute of Victoria. But as a result of that incredible two-year stint in the company, where I left it from a 12-ton fishery and I was able to, through negotiating with the government, bit of Supreme Court action, I was able to get it up to a 250-ton fishery. And um, scallops were on the menus of all top Australian restaurants, including on Australia's two restaurants that made the world's 50 best list. So I was incredibly proud of that achievement. But as a result of all of that experience, I put my hat in the ring to be a director of the new peak body for seafood in Australia, which is Seafood Industry Australia. And I'm lucky enough to be one of seven Australian directors on that board. So promoting seafood Australia-wide. When you're dealing with things like licences granted by a minister, there's always going to be public interest in those processes and the issues they relate to. In this case, it's scallop farming. How do you deal with situations when people in the broader community are concerned or thinking about what your business or your client is doing and how to deal with that type of concern? Yeah, we, um, Rex Hunt was um, the, our, the the main person that stood up against us. And Rex, is, as everyone knows, has quite a strong voice and is very passionate, um, but um, uneducated um, beyond the recreational fishing world, unfortunately. So part of my job was to to educate but the biggest part of my job was keeping it out of the media and sometimes you it, it, it that's the hardest thing because you really want to fight you want to get out there and say no this is an amazing industry and despite it being 250 tons where that that's still only a two percent of what's actually down there so it's Minor, and you'd have you know wrecks coming out saying raping and pillaging the bays, and you know recreational fishermen aren't going to be able to take their share, and 
And and it is frustrating because you know that's so far from the truth. But the way the media works, sometimes it's not smart to, to go out in the media. So I had to have a very strong strategy in place to, to keep certain things out. Plus also too, because it's an industry where you rely heavily on a working relationship with the government, you can't go out and say necessarily what you want to say in the media because then that's just going to shut you down entirely with ongoing discussions with um, with the government. And it's not as though you can change providers. It's not as though you can say, I don't like Telstra, I'm going to go with Optus or vice versa. You are stuck until there's a change of government. So you have to work with that, that government. There was one instance, though, where... Seb Costello, Channel 9 News, called and he said, Belinda, we're, we're running with this article. I know you don't want to. It's hitting the news tonight. We've got Rex. What are you going to say about it? And this is where I think your networks really work. So I sat down and went, right, I'm more than happy to do piece to camera. Come see me. But I'm also going to offer you Neil Perry. And Neil was great. He did the piece to camera and it was put together as a personal fight between Neil and Rex. And you, you, you know who's going to come out better and, uh, and win that fight. And, and that was brilliant. So we've had some fantastic advocates for, for this industry. You're now, of course, the president of the LIV. What have you enjoyed about that role? Oh, that role is, it's huge. I, I was quite naive going into that role, I have to say. I didn't realise it was going to be as, as massive as it is. I'm very much a people person. I love hearing unique stories. And I think that's probably one of the, the best things about this role. I, I have that opportunity to, to reach out to our members, to the profession. I can lead discussion on both a, a, na- a um, state and national level. But I can have those one-on-one discussions too. And and it gives you that, I suppose, that courage and that right to sort of say, I think you're interesting and I want to have a chat to you. Can I? Uh, and I think that's exactly what I did to you. Yeah, <laughs> and it sounds like a good idea for a podcast, doesn't it? Yeah, it, it does. But there's so many incredible pro- professional people out there doing amazing things. And I just, I love hearing about it. Um, which is exactly what this podcast is all about. What will be the one most important thing that you'll achieve as president of the LIV? One. Oh, I, I can't limit it to one. Um, <laughs> I, I think there's, there's a few, few things. So when we're talking about probably more personal, I hope that my experiences and my story of being able to practice law in a different way and open up to broader possibilities I hope that's inspired others coming through and from conversations I have I think that that is the the case and I'm very heartened and warmed that even if I've changed one person's thinking I've achieved something there in terms of the profession I think this year we've had some some massive things on the agenda probably one of the the biggest that's going to hit financially and potentially could severely impact our profession is the proposal by the legal services commissioner commissioner to increase our practicing fees of up to 220%. Now, 
if we turn that into a dollar figure, it depends on your type of practicing certificate, maybe it might equate to an extra 500 to to $1,000 per practitioner. So it doesn't seem like a lot, but when you actually look at it, it, it could make or break our profession. It could mean that, um, so currently most firms do pay for your practicing certificate. So multiply that by a few thousand of solicitors that are in those large law firms. On the other side, look at smaller practitioners. They may not be able to keep their lawyers on. They may not be able to put on new lawyers. Practicing law is quite expensive. It's not only a practicing certificate, it's continued professional development. It's our insurance. So a 220% potentially could be the straw that breaks the camel's back. So far, we've been able to hold that back. Those conversations are continuing. So if we can keep that at bay, that will be a massive achievement for the profession. And I think the other big achievement that we're seeing is because we do have such a strong voice, we've been able to see some measured laws come into effect rather than knee-jerk laws. Typical example of that is as a result of what happened in Burke Street earlier this year, which was a very tragic event. And we had the government come out within a few days saying that bail needs to be reviewed. Now, the, the Law Institute... I convened a special task force that worked on that issue um, and they comprised of experts across a variety of fields and not just criminal law. So we were looking at people, solicitors that dealt with Aboriginal, disabilities, technology issues, mental health and well-being. So a lot of sort of a broader base of, of our skilled and volunteer profession provided a lot of advice to the government they provide a lot of advice also to Justice Coughlin, who was running that review. And now the Law Institute continues, now that we've got that law in place, the Law Institute are continuing to help the government and the courts in the implementation of that so that we actually see workable laws and laws that are going to be sustainable as well. So I think that's that's a few achievements that we're, we're seeing and we've seen so far. And there's a million others behind it as well. If there's a lawyer, let's say, here in Melbourne, and they're looking at a job that's advertised online and it looks like a great role for them and they see that it's in Sale or in Terrelgan, do you think they should take it? Well and truly. If they are ready for an incredible practice experience and they are ready to be welcomed into a new community... There should be nothing holding them back whatsoever. What's next for you after your role with the LAV? I have no idea. And that really stumps me. And if anyone has any ideas, please let me know because I would love... I feel as though I'm in year 10 again and I'm sort of talking to the careers advisor. About to go to Japan. Yeah, about to go to Japan. And, you know, back then my careers advisor said don't do legal studies because it's way too hard. Um, yeah, so she was... Spot on. Don't, you know, I, I, I'll never achieve anything in the law. So, um, yeah, um, but I, I really don't know. I, I, I think whilst I love regional practice, I don't think 
I can go back to day-to-day practice. But at the same time, there are other opportunities. I will continue being a lawyer no matter what I do. I will just be practicing law in a different way and leading the way for other lawyers to to follow suit. And um, I'm quite comfortable that there are opportunities that will open at the right time for me that I don't even know what they'll be yet. So maybe ask me next year. (laughs) We'll see. Lawyer by Day is produced by me, Mark Tyndall. If you enjoyed this episode, send me a tweet at lawyerbydaypod or do me a favour and just tell a friend or colleague to subscribe. I'll look forward to talking to you all again in a few weeks. I think I've I was quite diplomatic on a few points that I could have gone. <laughs> Which ones? Oh no, no, because you're recording, and I've I've learnt you do not <laughs> don't get tricked into that. It's not a trick. I'm offering the opportunity, you know, so yeah, you can yeah. you can say whatever you want. Oh, there'd be some great frontliners on, you know, President of the Lawrence here says. Oh, this is, this is not a, a cheap podcast. It's not a cheap...